Well, we're continuing through 2 Samuel. I don't know that we'll get through all three chapters, but we're going to give it a try, um, and we'll see how discussion goes with that. Remember last week we kind of took this pause, and it said that there was peace in the land after David had conquered all these things, and we talked about how really that was going to take place after these next three chapters, actually, um, chronologically. But it fit well with the ark coming into the city of David and back to Jerusalem. And, and so, or Israel. Um, and so at this time, we're going to talk about some of the battles that are taking place. And so Second Samuel chapter 8, let's read through the whole thing and then we can talk about it. Verse 1, it says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Methag Amma from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadadzizir, son of Rehob, king of Zophah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadzir, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadzir, and brought them to Jerusalem from Teba and Berathia, towns that belonged to Hadadzer. King David took a great quantity of bronze. When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadzer, he sent his son, Joram, to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in the battle over Hadadzer, who he had been at war with, who had been at war with Tau. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, and Amalek, he also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadzir, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And, King, and David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Now, as we read this chapter of just David's onslaught, what stands out to you? Well, first, let me say this. For a half a century, the Israelites had been at war with the Philistines, and the Philistines were constantly 
being an oppression and a, a problem to the Israelites for about 50 years before all this happens. And then David comes on the scene and ta-da, this is what we have. What things stand out to you in this chapter before we kind of go through and pick things apart? Anything stand out to you guys? Remember, you don't have to be afraid. Okay, if you're thinking, wow, that was mean, you can say that, or I, I don't get that, yes. The brutality. <laughs> the brutality. Does anyone else notice the brutality, or, or any of you cool with that? Then we're a little worried if that's the case. And, and that's, I think, a legitimate question, and I think that's one that we need to talk about. Anything else stand out to you guys in this chapter? That means they would actually cut the hamstring of the horses so that they couldn't be used. And so it was, and also because David probably could not use all those animals or care for them while they were battling. And so instead of trying to try and take care of all those and use them, he just hamstrung them so that they couldn't be used against him and took what he could use and be adequately able to work with. So the brutality. And here this, you know, especially when it ends with, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. We have to get a few things clear in our mind when it talks about the Lord giving victory and also the Lord actually doing the things. In other words, God can give victory, but it doesn't mean that God is responsible for everything that a person does, even in that victory. There are times in war where God will give victory to a nation, but it doesn't mean that every soldier who acts in that victory does what is right. But God is still at work controlling, guiding, and leading. It's important to have that understanding. Now, to throw more problem into this, or, or question at least, when David defeats the Moabites, David's great-grandmother was a Moabite, a very famous Moabite. You guys know her name? Ruth, right? Why would David do this? We know from 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel chapter 22 that David entrusted his parents into the Moabites and said, take care of them when he went off to flee from Saul. But we don't know any more than that. Maybe his family was mistreated. We're just guessing. But it's curious to note that he dealt with them so severely. I know, it makes you want to scream. And, and so the whole idea of, you know, one in every three, so he wiped out a third of them, which is quite severe. But then he kept the rest in this servitude that they would pay tribute. They could continue living and working, but they'd have to pay taxes to David. And so it is a very strange and difficult thing to notice. Now, also be aware and knowledge at least what David did do for 50 plus years they had not been able as a nation, which included the reign of Saul, to stop the Philistine onslaught or that of the surrounding nations. All of a sudden, one man comes on the scene and there's a change. And this is one of the reasons he is a great king. 
is because he has the ability to get these people together, to unite them. He has the military process to be able to move them forward in this kind of manner, which is incredible when you think of one man doing so much and the difference one person can make. It's astounding. And it's a credit to this man of his ability to mobilize, unify a nation, and then stop these other nations around him from continuing the harassment. Gloria is very upset. Miles left the building. And so notice at least, whether you agree with his methods or not, that this king made a tremendous difference to this nation and is the one responsible for putting them on the map to this degree. And so it's real important for us to take note of this. Now, with that being said, we also need to bring up the fact that David was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man of war. And the brutality that we see here and that strikes us, I think it's important to recognize that God doesn't want David connected to his name when it comes to the temple and the worship. And so that's something that I just found interesting regarding all the things that David is doing, all the things that takes place in the battles and the brutality. We acknowledge David's ability to move the nation. We also acknowledge God's wanting to, in a sense, separate himself from this brutality when it comes to his worship. And so when David does all these things and it says, and God was with David in all the things he does, it doesn't mean that God condoned every method or every decision, but God was at work establishing the nation of Israel and establishing it through this man, David. And so just some important things that I think we should look at when we're talking about that. And as David brings in these battles and victories that take place and the nations start to fall, it's interesting that as the nations start to fall, we actually see other nations start to respond. In other words, when they saw that David struck down all these people, all of a sudden it's like, hey, send David a gift. Let him know we're with you and we're going to side up with you. We're so glad that you you did this. And so now we're going to bring you this tribute, these things that, you know, show that we are with you to kind of give you a recognition, to congratulate you, it says, in your victory. And so Joram brought these articles of silver, gold, and bronze. Also notice that David, in the midst of this, dedicates all these things to the Lord. And what that means, he didn't take the spoil just for himself, but he was using this for God, for the kingdom. And God is going to recognize David's devotion to him. 
And that's part of the reason as David is dedicating these things to the Lord, he is doing these things for the nation, not just for himself. And God is establishing his people in the land that he promised. And so God is giving David continual victory. And so the Lord gives David victory wherever he went. Verse 15, it says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zerah, was won over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahiluid, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abathar, were priests, or not just priests, they would actually be considered people who were advisors. And so they weren't necessarily priests the way we would think of them as priests. At this point, they were the advisors, where Abathar um, were priests. They were actually the high priests, uh, Ahimelech and Abathar. But his sons were more advisors in that sense, in that regard. Any questions or other thoughts on this or even comments on what I just shared? Yes. Yeah, and we're going to see that even further in chapter 10 where David does reach out to other nations, and sometimes they don't reciprocate, but he tries to at least in that way. Um, I do think it's a telling thing that a person can make such a difference. It really is a tribute to David and what happened. Any other thoughts just on this chapter? Hmm? No? Okay, we'll go to a nice chapter now. Chapter 9, we get, we get a change of pace. Now, I think it's important to ask and search questions. When we read a chapter with this brutality, it's okay to ask God why. Okay? It, it, and not be afraid that, oh, I can't ask because it's there and God's with David and so I guess it's okay. It's okay to ask the questions. Remember, Scripture gives a lot of disclosure without giving a lot of information at times. And, and so God will say, this is the way it happened. And we want to know, well, why did it happen that way? And God doesn't disclose all the information. It's much like Jesus in the parables. A lot of people think the parables are short ways to make things clear. But Jesus said, I tell them in parables so that they'll be a little bit confused and have to really seek after the truth. And so sometimes Jesus would give a parable and they'd go, Lord, why do you speak them in parables? And he says, well, to you it's been given to know the things of the kingdom, but to them it hasn't not. And the whole idea of the parable was to make them question, to make them want more and to seek after God, because God was already speaking into their souls. And I believe God does that with us in Scripture. God will give us an information, and it's to challenge us to search him for answers, for understanding, and to give us the hunger to want to find out. He doesn't give all these things, and we have to say, well, I guess it's okay to kill everyone in third person when you're in war. Okay, that's not the message here. And it's good to ask the questions. Doesn't mean David was right in doing it. It's just what he did. But God was with him and the nation. And it's one of those things where you have to look at it and you have to start, well, what's going on here and why is this taking place? Is everything that David did right? Well, we're going to see, of course, it's not. He was a man 
just like us. Heaven, are you raising your hand or are you just... Yes, oh, you're... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were. They were brutal. Doesn't mean it was an okay thing. It was just the way. It wasn't the same thing with the treatment of women and how David had many wives, which we've talked about a number of times. It doesn't mean it was good. Well, and he's doing what's necessary to win the battle at the time. And so that's, you know, what's taking place. He's, he's doing it also for the nation of Israel. And this is how you get things done. And we've talked about this a few times when we talked about David and Saul and the times that David wanted to go and kill, um, what's his name, Caleb, um, you know, just because he wasn't going to give him the money for the food for protecting his people. He, I mean, it's not a good thing to just go kill somebody. You know, that's not okay. And it was a good thing that he was stopped. And he even commended you know, uh, what's her name? Abigail. Abigail um, for, yeah, stopping him. You know, and so David, there was a lot of times where God stopped him, you know, from that act and that way of behaving. And it's good to call that in question. It's It would be wrong for us to just accept that everything that David did was true, okay, or right. Everything's true in Scripture, but not everything is right. The scripture is giving a true recollection of all that was happened. It doesn't mean that God is citing and saying, yeah, it's okay, I approve of this. A lot of those things aren't. Heaven, did you have a question still? No, I Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Okay. So anyway, I think that's an important truth to recognize. Okay? Chapter 9. Let's go into something nice. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, or Ziba. Isn't that the lady's place, Ziba? Yeah, that they do the eyebrows. Yeah, anyway, so they, they're biblical. Um, now there was a servant in Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. Let's talk about this for a little bit. What did David say to Jonathan? Their last meeting. Do you remember their last encounter? They made a covenant with each other. You guys remember that? Yeah, it was Jonathan said, I see that you're going to be king. Even though Jonathan was Saul's heir and should have in the line become king, Jonathan said, no, you will be king and I will serve you 
All I ask is that you do not kill off my family. And David agreed. They made a covenant together. They loved each other. And so it's interesting that David says, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul? But it wasn't so I could show kindness to Saul. It was so that I could show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now think about this. Think about the kindness of Jonathan is now bearing fruit still, even though he is dead. His good deeds to David are going to live on. And when David is asking where anyone who is still in the household of Saul is, and he didn't know, we talked about this when he says, where is he? It's kind of a a sign that he was still in hiding. Okay, remember that we talked about when, well, we'll get into it a little bit more. And, and so the reason they're asking is because it's kept in, being kept on the down low. Because the lineage of Saul, if a king would come into reign, would normally be put to death so that there is no one who is going to be able to take the throne and say, I have a right to the throne because I am one of Saul's descendants. And David even used that as an argument for himself when he said, I'm married to Saul's daughter, so I have a right to this kingdom as well. Okay, verse 6. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, it's a hard one to get, I want to say it wrong every time. At your service, he replied, don't Be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And so even Mephibosheth apparently was afraid because David says to him, don't be afraid. And so David's acknowledging that, yeah, a lot of people would think that I would kill you. Don't be afraid. I'm going to show you kindness because of your father, Saul, and so much kindness that he is going to always eat at your table. Let me ask you this. Who eats at your table? Family. <laughs> you do eat at my table. <laughs> That's it. And so the whole idea is that of family. Okay, the whole idea is that if you eat at my table, you're a part of my family. And you have that position. And remember, Mephibosheth was lame. Do you guys remember the story? When they found out that Saul and Jonathan, his children, were dead, The nurse grabbed him to run, even though he is a young man. And remember, what does Mephibosheth's name mean? It means shameful breath, right? And we talked about what's what's the deal with that name? And it was probably because he had asthma or something. And that's why the nurse picked up, I think he was five years old at the time, and ran with him. Five-year-old usually can run pretty good, but no... Mephibosheth couldn't, he had shameful breath, could not run, could not breathe well probably. She tripped, fell, he broke his legs or something, was crippled 
from that point on. And so the man is lame. He can't walk, but he's welcomed at David's table. In verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So he was well-to-do, had a lot of kids. Then Ziba, I know, I will never complain about four again. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of his of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Great story. Great story of kindness. It's so strange that it comes after this chapter on brutality. It's like David's schizophrenic here. It's like, what? But he was a man of war. And on the battlefield, that's what you want. But it wasn't that he was without kindness and without compassion. And especially to Jonathan. Jonathan was closer than a brother to him. He loved him as his own soul. There was such a great interaction, and he was such a great example of a man, Jonathan was. And so we see the kindness being restored to Jonathan, to his son, in this condition. And especially a person who was lame at this time would be basically a beggar. They would not have the means to make a living, but now... David put Ziba and his household in charge of everything that Saul owned and to bring that in for Mephibosheth so that he could be provided for. And it just is a great example of a kindness. It's a great illustration for us how God has given to us, even though we weren't deserving, uh, God has been generous to us. And we see David just showing such a great heart and attitude at this time. Any thoughts on this chapter or things come to mind you guys want to share? Kind of like us. <laughs> kind of like me. Some days I'm full of faith and some days I'm, oh God, what are you going to do? I'm out of gas. You know, I mean, it's like, isn't that us? Some days we're really doing well. Some days we have bad days. Yeah, David's kind of like us. Yo-yo, that's a new term. That's work. Yo-yos. I think that is a term. Any other thoughts on this? You change your mind? Okay. Kind of like a yo-yo. Okay. Well. <laughs> yeah, shh. Better, better watch out there, Bill. <laughs> 
Well, let's go through chapter 10 because these three chapters are kind of lumped together. We don't know the period of time, but there's a good amount of time that's taking place through all these battles and all this time, maybe 40 years. There's a lot of guessing on what's going on. We don't know, but there is a whole bunch of time that took place in these three chapters. And then chapter 11, we're going to take another turn. But chapter 10, in the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died and his son Hunan succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahesh, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commander said to Hanun, their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved off, shaved off half of each man's beard, and cut off their garments at the buttocks and sent them away. That's what it says. Now, David is showing kindness. He's reaching out, trying to, to bring about this kind of, you know, coalition or just this, you know, ally mentality. And he's sending it out to the Ammonites, but the Ammonite king gets counsel to the contrary. Do you remember that someone gave David counsel when Saul's commander was coming over to him, was it a few chapters back? Do you guys remember what happened there? And who gave David counsel? That he, I'm trying to remember names. I know that David's... When, who was the commander of Saul's army? Abner, thank you. When Abner came to David to make alliance, who... Counsel David, his commander, Joab. What was Joab's counsel? Exactly. This guy's coming to spy us out. Isn't it interesting that these commanders are suspicious? Sometimes the role you play in life affects the life that you live. I know that the friends that I have who are policemen, a lot of them have this concept, very pessimistic, because they encounter the kind of scum of the earth all the time. Not always, but a lot of the time. They're encountering the people who are being violent or robbing or, you know, involved in some kind of illegal activities. And that's what they encounter on a regular basis. And they become very seared by those things. And I think it's interesting that these commanders who are men who go out and fight battles and are there dealing in a very brutal way with people, their perception of the world is one of not trust. Because here, David's intentions are shown. We don't have to wonder what he was about. It says he had 
This understanding he wanted to go and show kindness to him as he showed kindness to David in whatever way that was. And so David goes, but it doesn't go well, at least not for the guys who go out there. And so as David sends this envoy out there, they're humiliated. I don't know why half of the beard is shaved and not the whole beard, but that was a humiliation. I guess it's obvious you didn't mean to do that, you know. Although today, you might not know. Have you noticed there's a lot of people like with half their head shaved right now? It's, it's yeah. Maybe they're being sent away in disgrace, you know. And then cutting off the garments, that's obvious. That's, it's just to make them naked and ashamed. Verse 5, when David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men. For they were greatly humiliated, rightly so, half a beard and nothing from the waist down. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown and then come back. So you guys, take some R&R, take some time to recuperate, get the facial hair back to where it needs to be. This was, again, a manly thing at that time. Some of you guys can relate to that. You know, Michael, do you want to model for us right now? The Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David. Now, it's interesting. They realized that they had become obnoxious to David. They hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth, Rehob, and Zobah, as well as the king of Mekah with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from Tob. So they're hiring mercenaries to go out and fight for them. On hearing this, David sent Joab, there he is, his commander still, out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and the Rehob and the men of Tob and Mekah were by themselves in the open country. So we see they're split up here, the city and the open field. Joab saw that There were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue, but... If the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. And so here we start seeing the strategy. And again, we have seen Joab has had kind of a, He's been a good guy. He's been a bad guy. Remember, David pronounced this big curse on him, but then David kept him as a commander. But he's a good commander, and he's doing his job well, even though he killed Abner kind of brutally and had started some fights that he really shouldn't have. He wanted to kill Saul. David told him no, and here he's still fighting for David. And when he says, be strong, let us fight bravely for our people in the cities of our God, The Lord will do what is good in his sight. He was trusting that God is on their side and was going to give them victory. That was kind of what that means. Then, verse 13, Joab and his troops 
with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. So they're coming after him, and the Arameans said, let's go. They take off. And when the Ammonites realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. So it went well. They both chickened out. They didn't want to fight. Paid mercenaries just aren't going to fight for, you know, money like you would for your people or for your survival. They fled. The other ones saw that, oh, no, the help that we hired has gone. Oh, no, now we've got to run back and hide in our city. And instead of pursuing them further, Joab heads back to Jerusalem. For whatever reason, he didn't want to pursue them. Maybe they didn't have supplies to go further. Maybe they thought the battle would be there. We don't know, but he didn't go back. Maybe he was anticipating another battle which was going to come up. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadzer had Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates River. They went to Halem with Shobak, the commander of the Hadadzer army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Halem. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him, but they fled before Israel. And David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadzir saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites any more. And so again, we see a tremendous victory by David. David was a military man. He was great at it. He has established this war machine now in, in this time period that is routing everybody who comes at them or who is in their way. And you can't help but think of, again, what war was at this time and the brutality. I mean, war is always horrific. And we think of the thousands of troops, men and women, who have died in Iraq and Afghanistan at this point. And it's in the thousands, and it's terrible. And then you read about David killing 700 of the charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers in this one battle. And it's like, oh my gosh. Do you realize how brutal that would be? I mean, this is this is crazy stuff. This is, you know gladiator kind of battles that took place back then, you know, 300, whatever movie comes to mind that you're, you know, wanting to think of. This is bloody. This is hand-to-hand. There's no distance except for arrows, but it's not like we have battle today. There's no, you know, smart bombs. There's no shooting people from a distance. This is in your face. And what does that do to a person's psyche? Remember, this is the time. This is where God is working in the hearts of men at this time. 
and he is establishing for himself a people that are supposed to be a light and example to all the people around them. When Solomon dedicated the temple, we've read over and over again in 2 Kings 9, I believe it is, he prays and he says, God, when the foreigner, the stranger, comes here to this, your temple, answer their prayer request so that they might know that you are the God in heaven. The whole purpose of God establishing a nation was to reveal himself to the world. And so that is what God desires to do, and this is where it's taking place in the blood and brutality of the world. Why? Why is that happening? Any thoughts? Did anyone ever think that? Or do I? is it just me? Do you guys ever wonder, why is this so bloody? Why are 40,000 men killed in the battle, and, and this is the, the people of God? Is that okay? Does anyone ever ask that question? Why? No? Okay, we'll go on. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean that they were sorry. It meant that they realized that David was now upset with them. Yeah. And so David was now going to be coming towards them. I think some of the translations, it says that they realized that they were a stench. In some of the older translations, that they were a stink to David, actually, it says. And so... And with back the thought of just the brutality, the reason God is working here in this way is because this is where the people are at this time. In other words, this is what God is given to work with, is humanity in this state, and it's humanity in this state that God is going to work and accomplish what he wants, even through their brutality. It doesn't mean that God wants the people to be brutal. It's there's already, even as was mentioned, that's the brutality of the time that they live in. And so God is at work with the human race wherever the human race is, even though sometimes the human race is in a bad place. God is working with us where we're at, even when we're in a bad place. You know, we might not be in a place where we've, you know, been engaged with war and killed thousands of people, but maybe you've been in a place where you have been involved with, you know, something you shouldn't. Maybe you have been involved in lying or um, in theft or in some kind of addiction. You're in some place. Well, God will work with you where you're at and help deal with you where you're at. People who are engaged or are in prison, Usually the people who talk to the people in prison talk to them a little bit differently than you would talk to someone who is outside because there's a certain environment that they're dealing with. And so they talk to them to help them understand, and that's why people who have been in prison have a a lot easier time to talk with those who are there because you know what the joint is like. Like that, I use the term joint, you know, because it made it seem like I knew it was like, you know, they're just using, they're like, oh, you know what it's like to be here? Okay, I'll listen to you, because if you don't know, then how can you understand my world? And you see, God understands our world. Wherever that world is, God understands our world. And even though it's bloody and messy, or even though it's messed up, it's nice to know that God is at work. And that he works through people like you and me, yo-yos, you know, 
like us, people who have the issues that we all have and the issues that they have, to still further what he is desiring to do. Any thoughts or questions? Yes, Colleen. Yeah, and plus you survive. I mean, if the enemies are going to wipe you out. You know, everyone's a pacifist until, you know, something happens that threatens someone they love. You know, it's like, I'm a pacifist, but you mess with my family. Sorry. You know, all of a sudden, I, I my pacifism is put on the shelf, and so I need to do what is necessary to protect the things I love. Well, God loves his people, and he needs to do what's necessary also to protect those people. And so war is a part of that at this time. And, you know, it's a difficult thing. I mean, you see it happen in our nations. The United States tries to figure out how to help. You know, and so, well, you know, the war with years ago, Iraq and Iran. Well, let's support the Shah because the Shah will help you know, stop the battle in Iraq, you know, and then all of a sudden, well, the Shah gets overthrown. Okay, well, now let's support Iraq because they're going to help with the Ayatollah, you know, and so we're trying to, like, find out what can we do to make things happen, you know. What's that? (laughs) Anyway, we won't go too politically deep, but we see that difficulty in trying to establish some kind of stability in a region, God is trying to establish a people and keep them from getting wiped off the face of the earth. You know, and so battle is going to be a part of it. War, especially at this time, was just part of the world that it lives in. And it's a tough thing, but it's what how it is and what happened. Okay? Any other thoughts or questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like saying the Lord's will be done. That's what he's saying here. The Lord's will be done. He'll do what's right. And so let's be on what's right side. But, yeah, we can trust in him. All right, Gloria, you okay? Okay. (laughs) You have a question? Well, let's pray. Father, it's so interesting to look back at the history of your people. And even though it's difficult to fathom all that took place, and it's even more difficult to recognize that in the midst of all this, Lord, you are working to establish a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that will never end. And you chose this man, David, to be from where you would bring your son, Jesus. And Lord, how you work isn't as amazing as the fact that you do work for our sake. Lord, why would you love, why would you care so much for us and do and go through so much to accomplish what would be beneficial for all of us. It's amazing, and we stand amazed. And we thank you for this time, Lord, and I pray that you would continue to prompt our hearts to seek you and seek answers and to seek, Lord, deeper understanding of your words in Scripture. We do love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.